Welcome to The Sci-Files, brought to you by the Kentucky Psychological Association. I'm Rachel Yeager. I'm Logan Burris. And I'm Jared Mask. Today we're going to be speaking with Hogan Gagel, a third-year student in EKU's PsyD program. He will discuss the connection between trauma and substance abuse. As well as misconceptions that much of society has about those who have substance abuse disorders. Substance use disorders are a growing problem in our nation. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health found that 19.7 million American adults had a substance use disorder in 2017. We, along with Mr. Gagel, will explore how experiencing traumatic events in one's life may lead to them developing a substance abuse disorder and put them on the path of addiction. So Hogan, tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Hogan Gagel. I'm a third year clinical doctoral student at Eastern Kentucky University. Um, Currently, I have most of my research interests into suicide and trauma, but I also have clinical interests in working with veterans and also those who have issues with trauma and suicidality. Uh, right now, my practicum placement is at the Schwartz Center. This is a inpatient male substance abuse rehabilitation facility. I also spend some time at the women's unit, but most of my time is spent at the men's. Okay, Hogan, so first question we have, we often hear the word trauma thrown around a lot like the term OCD is thrown around. You know, for example, someone may say I have OCD when in reality they just are a very meticulous person and likes to be organized. Could you describe in layperson's terms for the audience out there the psychological construct of trauma? Yeah, so when we look at trauma, what this is is an emotional response. So when we look at this, it's typically a presentation of symptoms rather than Oh, the actual experience. You can experience a trauma and therefore you have this response to that trauma. When we look at that, if you have enough symptoms that are present and they're disrupting your life in a significant way, that's when it can turn into a diagnosis such as post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as PTSD. So Hogan, uh, I have an interest in working with children and adolescents in the clinical field. I was wondering, what are the statistics of children who experience trauma? Yeah, that's a good question. So what I know about this area is it's approximately 35 million children have reported experienced one or more instances of childhood trauma. And these are people in the in America. Um, and that's from the National Survey of Children's Health. I'm sure there are other data on this. And that number is typically from either a self-report or can be collected from incident reports. So, you know, as we look at that, it could be pretty broad in what the actual numbers are. So that's kind of just a ballpark guess for you. So you have 35 million children in America who've experienced trauma. That's a very big number, very shocking indeed. What is the procedure um, when you have a child who has experienced trauma, like in the mental health or the clinical field? So when we look at specific treatment, especially for children, our common approach is using a treatment format known as trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, or TFCBT. And this is an approach where we allow these children to develop a trauma narrative. And this is a big backbone to this treatment. Essentially, we're using words in a written format to help this child be able to express what's going on and be able to process the trauma that way. Um, There's other treatment methods that are available, but this is just one that we typically use. So Hogan, I've got a two-part question for you here. One, what is PTSD? And two, who is most likely to develop it? So PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a mental health condition. 
And it's an accumulation of certain symptoms that are present that are impacting this person's life in a negative way. Um, the people who are most likely to develop this are the people who experience a trauma. More so, it's those who experience a trauma and they haven't developed a sense of resiliency. This is a sense where you can go through something that's really traumatic and difficult and then still be able to kind of bounce back from that event. That doesn't mean that those who go on to develop PTSD or have a negative response to trauma are any less or weaker than those who maybe have more resiliency. It's just different levels of skills and life experience that someone has had. Um, as we know things with our mind and our body, everything is a bit of a combination of environment, but also our genetics. So both of these can play a role in developing where a person is at and their likelihood of being susceptible to developing PTSD after a trauma event. So does a person have to experience trauma firsthand to develop PTSD? No, not at all. People can develop PTSD by just hearing about an event. Um, you can have people who have experienced directly, but also if you get a call and hearing that something really negatively has impacted someone else, this can also cause PTSD for that individual. They can have flashback events to that phone call. They could be thinking about the event that occurred. These can come up in lots of different ways for these individuals, but no, not at all. You do not have to directly experience the trauma firsthand to have PTSD. Okay, so if people who experience trauma aren't seeking help, what are ways that you see them coping? So someone isn't going in for treatment, which quite honestly is often the case. These people experience these events, they try to move on with their life, or they try to cope in other ways. Often we see some pretty standard ways. They try to take some time for themselves, almost like a grieving process where they try to you know, take on different activities, involve themselves with others. These can be ways that people cope. We also see some ways that might be a little bit more negative, such as using substances or potentially eating more or less, different patterns in their sleep. There can be all sorts of ways these people try to gain a sense of control or normalcy in their life. Um, but often these kind of do kind of lead down that difficult path for them if they haven't received proper help as well. So Hogan, you mentioned um, substances. Using substances could be a way to cope for someone who's experienced trauma. How exactly are trauma and addiction to substances connected? So when I look at this and when I work with people at the unit on this, I kind of describe it almost as this chicken and egg problem. So these individuals who come in who have an addiction, they will often have experienced a trauma in their life. Now, I will say this, it does not mean that everyone who has an addiction experienced trauma, but often they have. And this could be what has happened before their addiction or even after. The events and things that people engage in while in the throes of active addiction can often be traumatic. And so whether it be that something happened to them before they started using alcohol or drugs or the life that they're living afterwards, both going to have a role in driving that addiction to continuing that use pattern. So when it comes to substance abuse, a common misconception about this is thinking that people engage in substance abuse because they want to add something new or fun to their life with drugs or alcohol. But this doesn't sound like it's the case, especially when trauma is involved. Would you care to elaborate on that? Of course. So when we're looking at addiction, especially that initial onset, there's a bit of a concession of this person might have used for multiple reasons. It could have been due to social reasons. It could have been to alleviate some effects of a trauma 
or they could be just trying to experiment with something. That initial onset with alcohol or drugs has a variety of starting factors. I think what's important to remember though is subsequent use afterwards for a lot of people isn't this choice anymore. It's becoming an addiction. It's becoming a pattern of behavior. They find that, oh, using this substance makes me feel better. And this typically isn't a conscious thought that they're having. This is something that they just feel and they learn that pattern of behavior. So when they go through and they experience a hard time again, they go, hmm, I wonder what would make me feel better. Oh, this drug, alcohol, that might make me feel better. So they turn to that. They learn this coping strategy over the time and they practice that. And the more that they engage in that behavior and what they are unknowingly doing is driving into that addiction and driving into that behavioral pattern. And that begins to influence lots of areas of your life. You know, Hogan, hearing you explain it that way brings me back to some of the misconceptions I used to have before I started pursuing a professional field and clinical. And some of the misconceptions I would have is that, you know, I would see someone who's addicted to something or know that they've had to go to rehab. And, you know, it's almost like this uh, stigma you put against the person or you think uh, they're lesser of a man or woman because of something that they engage in. But, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is like, you know, it's not something that they want to do just to get a thrill out of it. You know, especially when trauma is involved, it seems like it's something they do to cope and to make themselves feel as close to normal as they can. Yeah. Also, in addition to that, I've often heard the notion that addiction isn't a disease or it's more like a choice. I don't know. What do you think about that, Hogan? Yeah. So when I work with the guys at the unit, a big thing that comes up is this idea behind a disease model. And there's some debate in the community about what exactly there might be. Is it dual diagnosis? Is it a disease? And personally, I view that the main thing to take away from it is it's not a choice, regardless of what it is. Um, Though there is that debate in the scientific community, this is something that comes from a pattern of behavior and areas of the brain that interacting with each other that are driving this individual to continue to pursue substances to feel better. Like Jared brought up, these are people who are just trying to feel better. They found this way to feel better and it works every single time. I don't think there's anything strange about that. Now, that doesn't mean that has led to them other problems in their life and that it's probably hurting their health and their relationship with others. So, of course, we want to support them in finding other ways to cope that might be more healthy. But at the same time, it's not coming from this moral failing. It's someone who's in pain who wants to feel better. And often, feeling better for them is feeling baseline. They're not really getting this exorbitant high that we might describe. Though in the moment they might feel euphoric, but afterward they feel terrible. And so when they continuously look and drive to get those substances again, it's coming to that sense of feeling normal, feeling baseline. I feel like, yeah, we use the word choices a bunch. And I feel like that kind of derives in our minds from, you know, we're a westernized American society and we kind of, we have that whole pull yourself up from your bootstraps mentality. You're an individual, you make your own choices. You know, we're not very, like, you know, I don't care what you're doing. I can change me. I can do what I, what I need to do to succeed. But, you know, that's can be true in some cases. But I feel like what you're saying here is it's not the case in this instance. Oh, no, not at all. If you have a heroin addiction, you can't pull yourself up out of that. This isn't just a try harder and you're going to be better. Right. 
the biological and behavioral patterns that have ingrained themselves for you to get to that point is so deep. It's like telling someone who has cancer, hey, just stop having cancer. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Well, I think that's the stigma that surrounds um, surrounds people who are addicted to substances, you know. It's like, of course, that's ludicrous. You wouldn't tell someone who has cancer, like, hey, quit having cancer. You stop that right now. But it's like... You know, I think that's part of this. We need to break this stigma. That's why we have you on here today is because you are very learned and very knowledgeable about this topic and about this population. Yeah, and I, yeah, I've i heard arguments several times, you know, well, I've had a hard life and I've never turned to drugs or I've never done this. Well, yeah, but you're you and they're them. So Yeah, I think a big piece from that is understanding about ourselves and our own susceptibility. What drives us and makes us different from someone who might have addiction problem often is nothing. It's an environmental situation they're placed in. Um, a book that I read that I found that was really helpful in gaining an understanding of that is called Dreamland. It's a little bit longer, but it describes the in-depth nature of the opioid epidemic in America and how systematic it is and how ingrained in the system it was becoming when it onset. And I think if you take some time to educate yourself on knowing that, oh, people are being targeted for this, and it's not people from low income. It's people from every population, every background, every walk of life. No one is really safe from this. It's just somehow we've been able to keep ourselves well, turn to other methods to cope, and just haven't walked down that life yet. The scary thing is there's nothing really separating us from that. So getting back to talking about how some people like might use a reference, I've had a hard life and it didn't happen to me. One thing I kind of think of is when, you know, with all of all of us being in the same program, one thing that I just kind of have created into being my mantra is uh, once you've met an individual, you've really only met an individual. And I feel like that's so applicable in this case when it comes to substance abuse and trauma. You know, it is no surprise that in Kentucky there is a, a massive problem with opioid use and substance abuse, especially uh, in my hometown, in my home area in southeastern Kentucky near the Appalachian Mountains. Um, what are some steps to take if someone you love is suffering from an addiction? So the first thing I would really like to reach out and let these people know is making sure you're finding support for yourself. Being someone who is connected with those who are struggling with addiction is very draining and very hard. Though these people have a disease and they need help, they are also engaging in a lot of behaviors and patterns of actions that are going to hurt those around them. Now, we need to be supportive of these people. We need to try to help get them the resources they need. But at the same time, we got to take care of ourselves. So find that support for yourself. And that way you're able to be able to be for the other person. I think a tough balance is that component of am I enabling versus Am I supporting this individual? And to be honest, that is a very complicated question. Everyone's circumstances are going to be different, and you can only do the best that you can do in the situation. I think often educating yourself and educating your family members or those around them can be a good step. The more we know about what's going on, the better actions and ways that we can interact. But at the same time, Make sure you're taking care of yourself. What are the biological components of psychological trauma and addiction? So when we look at the connection between addiction and our brain, that's quite honestly a topic that is a whole other podcast to go into detail about. 
but to provide the listeners a bit of information that might be helpful for them, a way that helps me conceptualize it and the way that I talk about the patients at the unit is when they conducted a study on people at different levels of survival need. They looked at people who were in starvation, people who were dying of thirst, and then also those with addiction. When they look at these different needs, they mapped on the brain how it lighted up when presented with the things that they were needing for survival. For the individuals who were starving, when they gave these people their food of their favorite choice, they would then you know, let them taste it and then immediately have to spit it out, and they monitored this on an MRI of their brain. When looking at this, they saw that when they compared that to individuals who were without water for several days, they saw the same brain regions lighting up. They knew this is kind of the, oh, I'm in a survival mode, I need these things to live, get me these things, I need them now. When they took the same thing with individuals who hadn't gone without the drug of choice for quite a while, they saw the exact same brain regions light up. When they look at that, they also notice the comparison was much larger. The brain regions that were lit up were much more active. So these individuals who are going without their substance for a period of time are experiencing it just as though they are about to die of not having food or water. An example I heard one time is if you're in the desert and you've been there for two and a half days, and as we know, after three days, you'll die of dehydration. And you see a guy over there with a table and a glass of water. And, you know, it, it looks all nice. It's very, you know, refreshing looking. You're going to walk up to that person and they're going to go, no, this is my water. No, you can't have this. You're going to go, okay, stab. And then you take the water. <laughs> yeah. That's just what you're going to do because you need to survive. Your brain is telling you, if I don't get this, I'm going to die. And I think what's important to know is these individuals who are having an issue with alcohol or drugs, their perceived reality is the exact same thing. So it sounds like in a situation like this, for someone to write someone off that's struggling with substance abuse and be like, well, if they had determination enough they could quit. They're just, you know, they just don't care enough about whether it's they've got kids they need to be taken care of or something else that they other people would deem way more important than the drug. You know, I just hear the word fight or flight, and I think it doesn't take a psychologist to understand how that's a serious thing, especially with the uh, example you just used. Yeah, and I think another piece that can also provide some context is if we look at dopamine. When we look at dopamine in our brain, we obviously think of this as like this reward center, the thing that's driving. But in reality, what dopamine is motivation. When we receive dopamine through the brain, it is our brain saying, ooh, I like that, do that, do that thing. Mm -hmm. And so we continuously, if we are looking out for that dopamine, we'll engage in that thing that promotes it. If we look at people on a level throughout the day, if you're gonna be able to get out of the bed, you need a level of motivation to get out of bed. So your brain secretes dopamine. And if we look at the actual numbers, it's about 50 nanograms. So if you think about a baseline level day to get out of bed, you need about 50 nanograms of dopamine. Now, if you look at someone who has had the best day ever, you know, won the lottery, is, you know, got their favorite job, you know, they're with their love of their life, the day is perfect. That person might get up to about 100 nanograms of dopamine. If you look at someone who's struggling with depression, someone who quite can't get out of bed, they're having a hard time with it. They're about 35 to 40 nanograms. Now, if you look at someone who has just taken methamphetamine, 
This person's brain secretes a thousand nanograms of dopamine. Oh, goodness so ten times the level of best day ever. Now I don't want that to be an advertisement of how amazing methamphetamine is, right. but if you look at the level of dopamine that's driven in their brain, look how giant this reward center is becoming. It's no wonder their brain, which is designed to say, if I get this, go get it. It's motivation. It drives you to do this action. It's no wonder that takes precedence over every other action. So when you put it into the perspective of nanograms and from what a normal person would have on a typical day, then someone who just had their best day ever, and then someone who's on methamphetamines, I think you'd be foolish to have that same rationale of, you know, just have determination to get over it. But I do want to ask you a question concerning the nanograms. Hogan, you mentioned that on methamphetamine, you, you have a thousand. Is it, do you get that many every single time you're on the drug? Oh no, that's probably part of the big problem is as you take the substance, whether it be methamphetamine, alcohol, uh, any of those, you get a diminishing return. And also your brain isn't designed to produce a thousand nanograms of dopamine. It does not like this. You're flooding it. And so in response, it naturally decreases the amount it normally produces. And as it does this, the amount that you produce on a daily rate on its own goes down. So think back to that normal day when you wake up with 50. Then let's say you've taken a substance for a while. And because of that, you then are only able to produce 40. Now you continue the substance. Now you're producing 30. Then you're producing 20, 10. Then you got someone who needs to use your substance not only to get out of bed, but just to survive. Their brain is producing so little at that point that they're not able to get by. So you're pretty much building up a tolerance. In some sense, yes. The next question is, can you give me a rundown of what kind of treatment is used to help individuals who have experienced psychological trauma and addiction? So one method that we use is known as seeking safety. This comes from a dual diagnosis approach. And what that means is that we're treating two conditions at one time. These are individuals who are presenting with both a addiction disorder and also a trauma event that has occurred. When we're looking at this approach, this treats both at the same time. It looks at both components. Often when we look at addiction treatment and trauma treatment at the same time, we want to make sure we get the person out of active current use. That's number one. We need to get them safe in a secure place or in a secure point in their life where they aren't immediately leaving every session and going and using substances. It's very difficult to do any trauma work if they're in the midst of active addiction. This does not mean that we need this person to have a year of sobriety under their belt or anything like that. We need to get them stable and cleared and able to work on these. And often rehab centers or hospitals can be good locations for it, but it's not limited to just that. So something that we have been learning about recently, Jared, Logan, and I, is uh, prolonged exposure. What is prolonged exposure? In a nutshell, prolonged exposure kind of relates to that age-old adage we heard from grandma, you know, face your fears kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, but in a sense, we're providing different ways to promote a stimuli that someone has this difficult reaction with over time. And with that, they become accustomed to it and learn that, oh, this isn't going to hurt me. I'm safe. I am okay. And therefore, with that practice experience, 
their body and mind's reaction to living that is reduced. And so the idea is we continually do that. They use it with skills that promote coping in the moment. Then we take away some of those skills so that they can learn that they can get through this without those. And hopefully by the end of it, this individual isn't in the middle of a difficult situation after experiencing these events that are anxiety or traumatic for them. Hogan, as I mentioned before, the area of Kentucky where I lived and grew up in, um, that is an area that the substance use disorder that is um, largely affecting the population. You know, I grew up where um, almost everyone in town and in that area, they were not at least connected to someone with um, addiction to substances or alcohol. Now, I know you mentioned something before and uh, talking about enabling behaviors. So what is that, what exactly is enabling? So if you look at enabling, this is a pretty broad way of identifying this. Um, I think everyone's position is unique and every situation is its own. Often, I think what people look at this is, is if you're giving this homeless person money on the side of the street and you think, oh, they're just going to go buy drugs with this. Um, that's not always the case. Often in lots of these areas, these individuals are struggling for different survival reasons, and that might not be enabling. At the same time, we don't know. At the end of the day, I look at it as I often would rather help this person get through their day than just say, you know, good riddance and let them struggle and try to survive on their own. With enabling with someone that you know closely, you got to monitor and look in what's being done to you and what do you need. We still should be supportive of these people. We still need to promote getting them help, but we need to make sure we're taking care of ourselves. If we're noticing our actions are then driving into this behavior to where it's coming back against us, then maybe we need to look at what we need to do for our own well-being. At the same time, not casting them aside, but also making sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of a lot of conversations that I've had with people who are suffering from addiction and you know, people who are, who love others who are suffering from addiction. Um, this concept of rock bottom. Uh, what do you think of rock bottom? What is, what is rock bottom? I, uh, I laugh a little bit when I hear that statement because I think of what the guys at the unit say about rock bottom and they always tell me there's always another bottom because you're still alive. You know, these are guys who've OD'd, you know, 10, 15 times. Mm -hmm. You know, people who gone through some pretty terrible things and there really isn't a rock bottom um as long as they're alive they haven't hit actual bottom yet so i think often the colloquial term that people use is the uh, oh you gotta hit rock bottom first and that's the only way it's going to come out i do see for some people that they're still in the midst of what they call the madness and they're not done they still need to take their lumps, as they say it there, and they need to go through it. Um, now, I hope what we can do is approach things from a harm reduction standpoint. That's where I stand, is that I want to support this person. That's why we should have you know, needle replacement programs, all these different things to support these individuals, because they're still going to engage in these actions. At the same time, we need to make sure that we're providing the resources, we're intervening when we can, we're making these accessible. Because if there's just that moment where this individual feels that I need to make this change, I want to make this change, we need to provide as much motivation and as much support as we can at that moment. Because it might be another year before they feel that way. 
and the harm that they could do themselves, their others in the community can be so large in that year time frame that it's not really worth the amount of pain that we're going to be causing people not to intervene. We view these people as criminals and villains and terrible members of society. When really they're just people who need help. And our actions of neglecting them are just feeding into that. So uh, let's imagine like there's a person listening who maybe they themselves are struggling with addiction or maybe, you know, they are a loved they have a loved one who is struggling with addiction and they don't want to enable them but they still want to support and love them. What are some healthy ways that they can support and love that person trying without trying to enable? So again, I'll say you got to take care of yourself. You got to know what you need. Um, it's a very difficult position to be in to have someone that you care about who is struggling with addiction. So if you're not taken care of, you can't help them. Uh, looking for those moments where you can intervene, making sure that you understand this person's going to have certain behavioral patterns that cause them to lie, they're going to steal, and that's going to be pretty a negative factor that comes up. Also knowing that there's some protective actions that you need to take for yourself and for the other members of your family and sticking to those. At the same time, kicking them out on the street, I don't know. It's a hard answer to have. It's so individualized and so personal that I don't think any doctor or any person of education can tell someone what they need to do that's right for them or this other person. It's so specific that we need to be supportive of ourselves, provide the support we can for others, but at the end of the day, you ought to make the decision that's best for you and your situation. In getting support, I think you can get help in making that decision at the time, but Blanket advice on this isn't really going to work. Going back to Logan's question, when I hear your answer to that, in summary, it kind of sounds like your answer is there's not really a one one size fits all to dealing with something as serious as, as a substance abuse disorder. Exactly. Everyone's addiction is so different. The way people experience, the way people live it. Um, a lot of the people I interact with have been in the midst of this for decades sometimes. Um, veterans of that lifestyle and when i work with them you see a history of this accumulate over time but there's also a significant piece of the population that aren't in that level of significance it doesn't mean it's not damaging and harmful but the way that we'd approach one versus the other is very different and i think that when we look at ourselves and are we enabling or what are we doing with these other people in our lives it's just as complex um just as we shouldn't expect these individuals to take care of themselves on their own, we can't expect the people who are supporting them to be able to make those decisions on their own. Okay, guys. Well, Hogan, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today on a very important subject matter. Um, we have one final question, and it's kind of, I don't know, different from all of the other questions that it's we usually do. usually the favorite. It's yeah. Favorite. <laughs> I don't know. This is, a, this is a doozy of a question. You know, I know, Rachel, you put on the question document, you put fun bonus question. It is a so fun bonus question. So that's what this is. It's, it's fun bonus question time. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's fun for us. I don't, know how, I don't know how fun it is for our 
interviewee. I don't know. Well, Dr. Botts did pretty well last time. She made us feel bad. Yeah, she, she did. Uh, so the question that <laughs> we asked Dr. Botts last week was, um, what is your superpower? But it can be fun or quirky. And uh, Logan's was... Yeah, mine was, I mean, well, Dr. Botts, hers was empathy. Which it's true, you know, she we is, just sounded she has a superpower. Yeah, I know empathy. It sounds like, oh, that's actually useful. And mine is like, oh, I can bite ice cream and not be affected. <laughs> like I like to mess with, you know, people that are just trying to earn minimum wage at a fast food restaurant by asking them to be my friend. And uh, I try to get songs stuck in people's heads right. at every possible chance. So very much villains. But I actually think there. we have a different question for Hogan. We is do. That right? We do have a different question. So it's not going to be of the same vein. Oh, but. Goody. Okay, so we're going to try to keep this legal, right? Try. Gentlemen, we're oh, going to yeah, try to totally. keep this legal. I don't yes. know who you're talking to. Well, Jared, <laughs> we're trying to keep it legal. Um, and uh, where you won't actually get in trouble. Okay, so when did you screw everything up, but no one ever found out it was you? Now, if you would like, we can give examples first, or you can just jump right in. So I think a time that I screw everything up, but no one found out was me. It was for a friend's birthday. We were making them a cake or something like that. And, you know, they were, we kind of worked on it together, but I was kind of throwing the last pieces together. And a piece of it was we needed some kind of oil to go into it, but I didn't have any like measuring cups or anything. (laughs) So I thought I could like, and like look at the bottle and go, that looks about right. (laughs) Oh. And so I'm pouring and I go, one, two, three, and, four, <laughs> four, okay. and eventually you add too much oil because right. you're trying to count liquids. Um, <laughs> second, so, second to ratio. I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And so then I have to start scooping stuff out and like, I'm trying to scoop out oil. At this point, I realize I've had too much oil. There should not be so much oil. You don't need to scoop any out. Um, so use your hands. So I just mix it and they come in and they're like, Okay, is this done? And I go, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so then we throw it in the oven and cook it. And, oh, Lord, did that, uh, I don't know what happened. What that does happened. something like that look like? It was just, yeah, it, was it, a just, it just didn't cook. I didn't understand. And so they, like, tried to cook it longer, and then parts started burning, and then we didn't know what happened. So we just bought something from Walmart. Well, how did it taste, though? What if it was like... Did you just try it? Bad. What if you had created the very best cake? Kind of like, you know, the potato chip was an accident. It's and like it's cake like... soup. Yeah, soup soup cake is not good. I do not recommend soup gotcha. cake. And they never found out it was you. No, I don't see how they didn't, because I was the only one who put the pieces together. It was the dog. You know, Hogan, dog. you saying that. I, you know, I think that's a little bit of genius coming out in you because it's full, you know, self-disclosure. We're learning times and places to do it. And I'm still foggy on that line. Um, <laughs> I feel like what you do. So I had an ex-girlfriend. Probably after I tell this, I'm going to understand why it's ex now. But I, um, I would, I had this concept where if I get asked to do something that I don't want to do, do it really bad and they want to ask you to do it again. So, I mean, you probably didn't get asked to make the cake again. So, I mean, that's a little genius if you ask me. It was like it was intentional, but not really. You'll never have to make cake again. I make good cake. Uh, so it wasn't that. For, he's like, I don't want people to take away that I'm not a good cake maker. No, I, I mean, I, like someone in our program, Gabby, like I made her a cake. Yeah. Like it was bomb. It was awesome. But I did not try to count liquids when I made her cake. 
I learned my lesson. He's pleading his case on here. He's like, guys, I swear, I'm good at baking cakes. This I, is I am much time. more a cooker than a baker, because when you cook, mm. you got eyeball things. You oh, make, yeah. Baking's you got, chemistry. You, baking is chemistry, and I'm not a chemist. It's um, very different. You're a psychologist. That is a very different field. <laughs> okay, who's going next? Because it's not me. Okay, um, I, well, I've been trying to think of this. I kind of... Th- finally thought of one it involves um sparklers so you oh know, mine little, has fireworks too you know, so i'm excited little little fire bugs little arsons fire you know? bugs <laughs> that's what a fire that's what they called us if you played with fire they're like oh you're a little fire bug down in the uh, mountains sounds silly. <laughs> but there's some silly so what i live yeah what i did was i was at my cousin's Our little fire bug <laughs> 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 oh man! I was at my cousin's house, and it, it must have been near the Fourth of July. I know it was during summer because it was really uh, hot outside, and it was it was late at night, and we had sparklers from uh, Fourth of July. So we were like, "Heck yeah, we're gonna like light these babies up, light some firecrackers, you know, blow stuff up, uh, normal things to do when you have nothing to do." And yeah, we go over. He had a trampoline. He had this awesome trampoline. So we would get the sparklers and light them up. And it's like, I think I came up with the idea. I'm like, guys, you know, I'm like probably 10 or 11. And I'm thinking I'm about to, this is about to be awesome. I'm like, guys, let's light the sparklers and like jump with them on the trampoline. Mm -hmm. We did that. Now, I don't know if you guys know, but like fire and trampoline mesh does not mix. Uh, We melted so many holes in that trampoline. And I felt so bad, but I didn't tell them how the holes got there. What I did was I was trying to, like, here's me 10 years old on, like, my flip phone trying to look up the prices of new trampolines because I'm like, I'm going to have to buy them a new trampoline. I just feel bad. And I kind of go over to my my cousin, she's my older cousin, and I'm like, hey, uh, I just want to let you know that there were like holes on this trampoline and I think we made them bigger by jumping, but there were already holes. With, I think they were, you know, I thought stupidness. I was like thinking, I'm like, I think there were like rocks on there and it put holes in the Punctured trampoline. Punctured it. Yeah. yeah. And it's literally like, I think they found out because in the morning, because this was at night, in the morning there were like singes on the trampoline. So we know it was fire. But that was the, the logic of a twelve-year-old. I know. I was like thinking they're totally gonna buy this, yeah. guys. Let's Some, do it. Someone picked up a cigarette habit real quick. I <laughs> had never heard of an ashtray. Yeah, <laughs> that was mine. I feel like I have to go next since we're on the like topic of firecrackers. Are you a firebug firework. too, Jay? Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a little. I'm a little firebug with you, buddy. No. Uh, I'm no. gonna. Oh, I can tell that there's some uncomfort with Rachel, so I definitely will start calling Logan my firebug. Okay. Um, anyway, so I'll get into it. <clears throat> when I was younger, I was uh, I was a part of a youth group in my small town, and um, I'm not going to say where I'm from because apparently I do that enough. Uh, but we went to a. I'm from Alabama, Rachel. I'll bring some spoons. So now I'll go ahead and get into my story. When I was in the youth group, when I was younger, we would go to these things, and they're called Songs of Summer. And what you would do is you'd load up in your church van with the youth group, and you would get there, and you know we'd sing songs about Jesus, you know, which is good and all. And but you know, it comes to a point you sing for two or three hours, and 
you know, I loved Jesus, but after two or three hours, I was just, you know, I was ready to, I had some energy from, I had some energy built up from singing and listening to some really um, compelling speeches. And anyways, I was a kid, so we had brought some fireworks, you know, along, you know, we were exploding for Jesus, you could say. Um, but, uh, do you like that, Whoa. Rachel? Uh, um, but anyway, so we were outside, you know, running around the parking lot before, because our youth minister, you know, they would chat with other youth ministers and kind of, you know, just talk about the next song of the summer that we're going to have. And we had these fireworks, and we were just throwing them. They were those little M80s, yeah. red with the yeah. green the fuse stuck in them, just little. It was fun to, you know, just throw in a pond and, like, so, and just stuff like that. And that's what we were doing. But at the end of it, I was... I was always enjoyed a good prank, still do. And, uh, you know, you could take the fuse out of the M80 mm-hmm. and, you know, you'd light the fuse and it looks like just it's going to blow up, but there's nothing to, you know, so I was like, okay, guys, I'm going to, the girls were already in the church van. And, you know, I was like, they're going to think I'm such a cool guy. Like, it's going to, like, oh, this guy's funny, you know, he's the cool guy. And, so I, I there was a girl that was she was you know kind of like you know she was one of the dudes she always played with us she she always hung out with us so I was I was gonna throw this at her the fuse that is can just I ask, you can ask you how yeah. old were you at this point I was I was too young to know any better I think I was seventeen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bro, I thought, this whole time I thought you were like eight yeah no yeah well i was like one year away from adult well you know i I could almost vote well you know down south we're we're light years behind y'all so it's about a age appropriate to an eight-year-old here i mean i was at i was on par with my social development so like let's get off of that okay um done yeah so girl i thought was cute was gonna throw the firework at her she was really cool i um threw it you know, without the M80, it just was a prank. It went sailing over her shoulder. Oh, no. Onto another girl's shoulder that had a, um, she, I don't know how to put this best. She didn't like me from the start. Um, and it went, and she wasn't in on, like, the joke at all. She never saw the, she just saw us blowing up firecrackers. And she had, I believe she had an aneurysm. Um, she freaked out <laughs> and she was crying uncontrollably. And, you know, like a rational human, when I saw that and that was the situation, we got my friend to call his mom to come pick us up before we faced the music, That's, you know, so yeah. rationally. Um, so I got away with it because his friend's mom was the cool mom and she like got us out of there, you know, kind of like she was a getaway driver. And so I got away with that and I just, it's just hard to sleep at night sometimes. Well, you know, we did say at the beginning of this to not talk about crimes right hey mom can you come pick me up i committed arson and assault (laughs) i love it well uh rachel i would love to hear yours i'm on the dessert train i i um the dessert like he was talking about cake Hogan was talking oh, about cake. Was like, Mine is, what is, is the dessert, dessert train? Related. You're not a point of the fire girl. You know, with a little... I want a dessert train. Dessert. It's dessert. Anyway, so... Um... How many times can we get Rachel to say dessert? <laughs> Too many. So I was... How old was I? About 12. And I was in a club. I don't even remember what club it was for, for school. And we... 
went shopping and did things for people disadvantaged oh, youth. It sounds and like stuff. a sorority. In middle school. Right. And so <laughs> we we got shopping lists for Christmas and we had our kid that we were going to just, you know, buy clothes for, buy toys for, all that good stuff. So I was doing a good deed. It's a good Samaritan. I want you guys to remember that. So afterwards, uh, the counselor that was in charge of this club took us to McDonald's. And I didn't really want anything. I just wanted an ice cream. And so I was sitting with my friends at the booth. You know, they were all eating. We had this McDonald's bag that was sitting in the middle of the table that everybody just threw their trash in, right? So we had about five minutes left before we were getting ready to leave. And all of my friends, I see you laughing. Stop it. (laughs) So all of my friends got up to go get refills. And I had my half-eaten ice cream cone. And I'm just walking up there with them because I'm cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's what cool people do. I talk like this. They talk like this and walk up there with their half-eaten ice cream cone. Rachel's the conductor of the dessert train. I don't know what school you're All aboard. (laughs) Choo-choo. Like we get voted prom queen because she's just so cool with that half-eaten ice cream cone. Anyway, so we go up to, um, they're, they're up there refilling their drinks, and I go up there, you know, I'm a little behind, and then I see the garbage bag sitting right next to him. I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't want this anymore, so I just threw it in the garbage bag. Didn't really pay any attention to it after that, and this man comes up and just grabs the bag and walks away. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... Oh, no. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, and he wasn't throwing away trash. That, that no. was his food. <laughs> and I just threw the ice cream right into his food. And uh, <laughs> Did you see him freak out? Or like, well, I went up to my to the counselor and I said, hey, um, we need to go. <laughs> uh, so you use my approach. Let's get like, out of Let's Dodge. Let's get out of here. Yeah. And uh, she's like, why? What's going on? I said, I think I just threw ice cream into a man's food and we need to leave. She's like, okay. You're so correct. She, okay everybody let's go gather around we're getting ready to leave and i saw the man just carrying like this bag of mcdonald's with ice cream dripping out of the bottom. <laughs> he was so pissed off uh, and he just goes up to the counter and slams it down i was like no now now's now's a good time well i mean really if you think about it you were doing him a favor have you ever had like mcdonald's fries in that ice cream oh, that's yeah. so good yeah i'm sure he really appreciated the fact that a half-eaten ice cream cone was thrown into his food oh yeah. totally yeah. you know what i think the funny had you eaten into the cone or was it just ice cream it was just ice cream i don't know maybe he thought they just dumped an ice cream they knew that someone ordered an ice cream cone but they're like i mean if the bag works for the burger (laughs) but the funny (laughs) the funniest part to me of the whole story is that they you know they just gave a chewing to whoever was at the <laughs> McDonald's cash register, yes. and they didn't deserve it. No, and the, the person probably lives with that, and they're like, do you remember that one time that customer came up to me, and, now, and they were yelling at me? And then the guy still thinks that it's their fault, Someone's the McDonald's got, employees still think he's a psycho. Yeah. Someone's got a penchant. Like, it's like someone, one of the workers has a penchant for just throwing ice cream in the bags. And instead... That's Dave. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, we had, to, we had to cut him a long time ago. He's not doing good for business. Wait, wouldn't it be hilarious? No, it Wait, wouldn't. no, 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 no. Wait, listen. Rachel, wouldn't it be hilarious if, like... That man was like one of our professors. Like Dr. Wigan. Dr. Wigan. And then he, he comes into class Monday and he's like, So Rachel, I uh I heard your story on the podcast. 
I got a story of my own. Uh, it's called how it's called how you got kicked out of the Zydeco yeah. program. <laughs> What's the butterfly effect? That's what it is. Oh my gosh, this is, this is this that. was a horrible idea. I love it. Though. That's hilarious. I yeah. love every everything about that story. <laughs> well, now you get to live with it too. I'm just imagining in reality she did throw it in the trash can, and the employee did put it right. in the bag. <laughs> yeah. Or like she did throw it in the bag with the guy's food, but there was actually an employee at McDonald's doing that to people. Yeah. <laughs> like, anyway, could you imagine? Like, it's just like Greg. And he's like, he like, here's this guy. And he's like, oh, got to go in the freezer. I got to hide. <laughs> he doesn't even do anything to him. He just he just fits the stereotyping. Old Greg's head. Oh, let me go in the freezer. Get those out. They're, they're, out. You know, they're like expired too. Just, oh, mercy. Well, I think that brings us to about our time cap. Yeah, I think <laughs> It's so. about our time. Uh, we want to thank Hogan Gagel for coming today and, uh, telling us very important information of the connection between trauma and addiction. Thank you very much, Hogan. Thank you all for having me. Uh, and thank you again to the Kentucky Psychological Association for allowing this podcast to even exist. Yes. I'm Rachel Yeager. I'm Logan Burris. And I'm Jared Mask. And this is The Sci-Files. Tune in next time.